0: Join me for new episodes on the third Monday of every month on the story behind the song from the Consequence Podcast Network, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hey pod people, Engineer Adam here, jumping in for a quick second to let you know about the brand new all-in-one platform for all of you creative podcasters out there. Anchor makes it easier than ever to make a podcast. It's free to use and has all the creation tools you need to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Plus, Anchor will get your podcast set up on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are found. Even better, Anchor helps you connect with sponsors, even if you're just starting out. It's the perfect choice for podcasters, so make sure to check it out. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's A-N-C-H-O-R.fm. Back to the show.
1: people Leo Phillips here with This Must Be The Gig your little backstage pass to the world of live music Every single week we bring you fascinating conversations from the beating heart of the performance scene with some of the most exciting names on this big gigantic spongy globe We talk passion we talk first concerts insights into the creative mind during this truly unusual time and everything in the Juicy Center. And this week, I'm thrilled to share a conversation with Drew Dixon.
2: Prince Purple Rain 1982 Capital Center. Uh, like, oh <laughs> my. If
1: you haven't yet seen the incredible new documentary on HBO Max called On the Record, I highly urge you to do so as soon as possible. The film focuses on a group of women who have made allegations of rape, harassment and abuse against Def Jam's Russell Simmons not to mention detailing how their experiences stand as a microcosm of the music industry at large. Among those women is this week's guest, Drew Dixon, who over the course of her career was a vice president of A&R at Arista Records, director of A&R at Def Jam, And the former general manager of John Legend's independent label Homeschool Records, and also the former manager of recording artist Estelle. She is a preeminent creative authority who has produced hit records with world class performers Carlos Santana, the song Maria Maria, Aretha Franklin, A Rose Is Still a Rose, Whitney Houston, My Love Is Your Love, Estelle, American Boy and Lauren Hill, Monica, Method Man, Mary J Blige, John Legend and Kanye West. Sadly, that incredible resume also meant she was in the orbit of abusive men. Drew broke her silence in the New York Times about sexual assault and harassment in the music industry. In the film, Dixon says that Simmons raped her while she was building her career in the mid-90s. Despite all that, and some time away from the music industry recovering from those experiences, she showed an enormous amount of strength in speaking out to the New York Times and telling her story in On the Record. Not to mention now launching her own independent company called The Ninth Floor, which we chat about, and also launching the career of the hyper-talented young singer-songwriter Ella Wilde. So in this chat, what we spoke about is the systemic misogyny and racism of the music industry. We had to tackle the impact of the documentary on the record. A must-see for anybody listening. And the opportunity for major change in the industry. Seeing Prince also on the Purple Rain tour and Shaka Khan singing jazz standards. And how DC's go-go music scene inspired her. So let us not be delayed. This is me and Drew. Enjoy and please take care of yourselves and wear a mask. Bye.
2: It's been crazy. I know it's been crazy for everyone. I mean, having the film come out in the middle of a pandemic and then in the middle of this sort of the Black liberation movement has been, you know, most unexpected. I mean, everything about this journey has been unexpected and unscripted. And even saying me too was like me going completely off the script that I sort of envisioned for my life where I was never going to publicly reveal that I was a rape victim. So I guess I'm living in deep in the land of off the script and giving it to God or whatever, Mm -hmm. giving it to the universe, the higher power. So the pandemic and the Black liberation movement happening when the film came out is, is, you know, I guess just another part of that. And um, I've been exhausted. I will not lie. We did about 40 days of press, kind of maybe a week to 10 days leading up to the release of the film. And then another like month after. And then there were these really intense waves when Russell Simmons surfaced and that was Mm -hmm. just like a gut punch. And then there was like a wave of people wanting to ask us how we felt about that. Mm. And even though I kind of didn't even really want to engage, one of the criticisms that we had and other advocates had was that he was being given a platform and we weren't being given equal time. So then when people did ask us to comment, I felt obligated to step up, even though I was really in pain, frankly, that he was being given a platform because I thought they are giving us a platform and that is a privilege and I don't want to squander that. So that was really draining I'm sure, and it's really just starting to settle down. And mm-hmm. so I'm grateful that it's settled down a little bit. And I was really tired. I left the city for like three weeks and I was still doing interviews, but at least I was not in the middle of Brooklyn with like Protest helicopters hovering overhead and stuff, and sirens going by because I was in the city for the whole thick of New York City in the pandemic. And so it's been intense, and I'm just starting to decompress, you know. But I'm grateful the film is out. There was really no guarantee that the film would ever even see the light of day. So I'm super glad it even has an audience.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's something that I think not a lot of people understand about its journey, unless you're in media and or the, you know, entertainment industry following the story from the last few years. But obviously it had, you know, it had its own struggles and the complexity of, of course, putting out something like this, whether it's, you know, in a documentary or an article is always going to be challenging. But I think, yeah, not a lot of people understand that it took so long and it was nearly, Cut uh, or at least right. delayed again after what happened with Oprah and everything. On well, I would front. say
2: it almost didn't happen a couple times. I mean, it almost didn't happen because when the filmmakers first asked me to go from being a small part of the Me Too documentary that I was participating in before I even went on the record to being a more central figure of a different documentary. I actually said no for several months and um, wasn't going to be a part of this film at all because I didn't want to kick the hornet's nest again. I didn't want to revisit this on a more public platform. I wanted to start healing after coming forward in the New York Times. I was going through a divorce. You know, I was finding a new place to live and I just, I really didn't even want to be in the film. So there was that period of time where the film almost didn't exist. And then I agreed to do it because I felt I started to really develop faith in the filmmakers understanding of the complexity of my anxiety, not just as a survivor, but as a black survivor coming forward about a black icon. And when I realized they were going to include that part of my struggle, I thought it was really important to go forward and that was really more important than my own personal anxiety about being so public again. So that was like one sort of near death experience for the film that was overcome really sort of internally in the relationship I I built with the filmmakers. And then, you know, having gone through that and overcome that fear and then feeling so safe when Oprah Winfrey joined as executive producer to then have the, the bottom fall out from under me and the other survivors and the film all over again, when Oprah Winfrey abandoned the project and took Apple TV away from the film as its distribution partner was literally like, you know, the worst. What is left? Yeah,
1: Yeah, I can imagine. I
2: felt like it was just like I was in free fall. And then we were going to Sundance and, you know, we didn't even know if anyone would ever pick it up after Sundance. So when we were at Sundance, you know, Sherry Salai and I didn't even know if that was gonna be the end, if that was gonna be like the end of the story and the film would never get beyond the like, I don't know, a thousand people that saw it in Park City. And that was really a very scary leap of faith for all of us to even kind of stand there and show up and hope The best, so yeah, it's been it's been a real journey. It's been a lot, and then HBO Max has been an amazing partner. I mean, I think Mm. that was divine intervention in the sense that I really can't imagine a better partner in a better home. And I do think standing up and going forward and and fighting for the film, even after Apple left and Oprah left, made us stronger as survivors. I think it helped. Right. us to realize that we didn't need this like superhero yes. savior. We just needed ourselves and our truth and our own courage. And I feel stronger that I went through that with Sly and Sherry and, and didn't sort of hide behind this hero of mine. So, you know, and then the pandemic came and then right. Black Lives Matter became a global movement thank god Mm -hmm. um so it's still i'm just sort of coming up for air like literally at this very moment it's a new beginning for me i don't even really know what to make of it all i'm just glad to still be standing
1: (laughs) yeah and i i mean i just am so grateful that you not only you know have taken the time to chat to me about it um, and about your life and about music, but also that you continuously, you know, I feel like that whatever you said on the show, it's, it's really everlasting, you know, on on the, mm. in the documentary, none of it is, right. I don't, I, I can't not remember some of the lines that you said and some mm. of the, even just how, you know, you, the facial expressions and how you were so yeah. open and told your story, And it's funny what you said. I think that that's such a fascinating point to make is that what do survivors need in order to tell their story? It isn't just bravery and courage. It is complete, uh, eternal support, structure, Mm. uh, systemic issues that are, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) will always be there in the industry that we fight against. Uh, racial inequality you know all the things that needed to just make one story come to life it just shows you how you not only is belief needed but so much more is needed you know it isn't enough just to believe survivors you have to actually stand you've got to put your money there you've got to put your time and it just shows you you know what happened to to all of you and what has happened to so many people in the industry over the last few decades and longer, yeah. how even if somebody like Oprah or an icon like her, even if she does abandoned projects, that, that story is still strong enough to stand if you you right. know, have enough people supporting which it's clearly shown so i feel like the story as much as it's about that it is also about so much change that has to happen as well you know i think uh, i was just so inspired how it opened from conversations of on the record open from conversations of needing to listen to women of color and who can Mm -hmm. have access or representation in a larger movement and it right. just seems, it seems that it's improving to a degree with projects like this, but I hope there's so. so much, there's so much of a gap there. Clearly yeah. I, I, there's so much still. Well, I feel like the
2: story of the film really became the story in the film. I mean, the story right, of us exactly. feeling afraid of being cast out of our own community as black women, the story of our fear of this powerful man and these powerful black entertainment insiders, silencing us for 22 years in my case, 30 years in Sherry's case, and I think also 22 years in Salai's case. Mm -hmm. The crazy thing is that the film itself then became caught in that very same web of, you know, black entertainment power players, I guess, sort of, you know, deciding among themselves that this story wasn't worthy, I guess, or was too disruptive. Right. And and that's what was so frustrating. Mm. It was sort of like I compl- I mean, I have so much respect for Over Winfrey. I always have and I always will. And I don't in any way begrudge her her right as a businesswoman to make a decision that she doesn't think this film is the right fit for her sure you know in terms of her objectives for her company but what was really frustrating is that there seemed to also be this idea that if she didn't do it then no No one one should do it like if she if she if she didn't want to be a part of it then suddenly it was like you know this like untouchable, unwatchable, unworthy project for like everybody in sort of black Hollywood. And that's, what's frustrating. Like, I just think, you know, I mean, that's sort of what has paralyzed and silenced all of us as survivors of such a powerful abuser for so long, you know, he controls so much of the game board. He controls so much of the real estate He's got access to people we'll never know and we'll never meet. He vacations in the Hamptons and St. Barts and places that I can't afford to go. And so the idea that like we were going to get shut down from like the top down was like this replay of the trauma that we were all just freeing ourselves from. So I'm just so glad that, Amy Ziering and Kirby Dick, the directors, are such genuinely independent sort of filmmakers with real journalistic integrity who, first of all, vetted my story, like they interviewed dozens of people, and they vetted all of our stories above and beyond the vetting that was done for each of us by the New York Times, the LA Times, the Hollywood Reporter, and they stood by their own research. They stood by their own faith and they weren't rattled. And that was like amazing, really. Um, I'm grateful that Sundance was, you know, committed as an independent film festival to show the film without its distribution and without its super, you know, illustrious executive producer, that was huge. And so, you know, it's, but the journey of this film to, find daylight and to get noticed and seen is really sort of a parallel story of the journey of black women to get daylight and oxygen and recognition for the pain we've experienced you know as survivors of the Atlantic slave trade that's Mm. just you know it's really ironic the film has has literally become sort of an echo of the story it's telling
1: absolutely and I loved something that you said early in the documentary that music has always been the language that you spoke. And I thought mm, that was yeah. such a beautiful thing because at the core of it, you I understand that a lot of your relationship toward music shifted over the years because of these mm-hmm. experiences. But I still felt that every time you spoke about it and even just the end shot of you listening to the record and taking it mm. out the sleeve, it was so symbolic of how... We also feel like survivors, um, even just the term survivor, uh, Mm. you know, we always feel that they're broken and that's it. And that's their life. And you Mm. have lived a life and you live life. And there's so much more beyond that. And so how quickly did you know that music was the way that you connected with the world? Like how Mm. young did this? Did it all start for you?
2: Oh, my whole life, you know, I I took piano lessons and I loved my piano lessons. My piano lessons were sort of a casualty though of my parents' divorce because I think like the day that I went to see my dad was the day I normally had piano lessons and he didn't have a piano, so the next thing you know, I sort of wasn't taking piano lessons anymore. But I loved playing the piano. My great grandmother Hazel had a had a little row house in D.C., like a thin sort of, you know, attached house, you know, like where all the houses look the same and they all kind of, you know, are like little sort of rectangles in a row. And at the bottom of the stairs, she had this baby grand piano and she would, quote unquote, bang on the piano in the mornings (laughs) and which meant she would play the piano and she would play gospel music and Broadway show tunes. And I would pretend to be asleep. After my sister would leave with my my great aunt, just that I could lie there and listen to her banging on the piano, <laughs> and it just soothed me. It just like totally just reorganized me at like the mo- most sort of profound molecular level. It was like it was like a pharmaceutical in the sense that like it was truly like it physiologically changed me and 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 soothed me and. So I remember that from like the earliest possible age. And, you know, my mother played a lot of Billie Holiday Mm. and Sarah Vaughn and Dinah Washington. But she also played like, you know, Bread and Yes (laughs) and like Hall and Oates Mm -hmm. and, you know. um, You know, my parents were politicians in D.C. They were local elected officials. So there was always music at these like campaign events, Earth, Wind and Fire, Chaka Khan you know I just grew up loving music I would stay up in the middle of the night and listen to my mom's records I would create mixtapes and my mixtapes had everything on them from like Duke Ellington to like the Smiths and you know I I loved go-go which was a type of music in DC that was like live only music where these bands would play this sort of jazz infused reinterpretation of hit songs. Mm -hmm. And the songs would go on for like 20 or 30 minutes. And that was absolute heaven to me. Just going to the go-go was like the ultimate, like joyful experience for me. So, you know, my mom used to even joke that, you know, when she, I got a car when I was 16, I went to the Dodge Omni, like the Dodge dealership and I got a Dodge Omni. And my mom thought I would be so excited to drive back to our house where she would like lead in her car and I would follow in my car. And I was sitting in the car at the car dealership for the longest time. And she was like, what is she doing? Why isn't she driving out of the out of the dealership? And then she came over and I had like my my overcoat was stuffed all the pockets with cassettes. And I was organizing <laughs> them in the car and deciding what I was gonna play on the ride home. And like, oh I couldn't God. even drive until Like my music was playing. I think it was was like I went with the Cure. Oh
1: my god! (laughs) Like you, you had to set the pace. Like you can't. Yeah, I had to set the
2: tone. I couldn't drive, and my my mom used totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And my mom (laughs) used to say that like they had to be careful because. My, like, speed and, like, manner of driving would, like, change with the music. <laughs> with the music. Like-
1: <laughs> I appreciated your comparison. Just speaking of your parents, your comparison of hip-hop as an empowering art form for, you know, the overlooked mm-hmm. to the potential power yeah. of politics. That Tragically, while both have potentially – they have so much change – There's also, they're both full of, you know, misogyny and allegations of sexual harassment and abuse and assault. So I feel like, so how important was it for you to then also have your mom not only as an emotional support, but also as this icon for you when you were younger? Did you know what Mm. she was capable of? Did you feel that empowerment?
2: When I was really little... My dad was the elected official. So Mm -hmm. my dad was a city council chairman, city councilman, and then he was a city council chairman. So my mom was usually behind the scenes for like the first maybe 12, 15 years of my life helping him with his campaign. And then she was the chairperson of a campaign for a woman named Pat Harris who ran for mayor of DC. So it was really my dad who was sort of the, the, the guy that I associated with sort of local political power and both of my parents were very devoted to empowering the citizens of Washington DC and the citizens of DC were predominantly black so there was also like an element of black empowerment mixed in with empowering sort of the city as a whole and I definitely grew up very well aware of both of them as these sort of like larger than life figures. I also grew up knocking on doors and passing out flyers and feeling like it was my obligation to carry on that tradition. And so I was very conflicted that I was so interested in music and I was like creative because I also felt like I had a responsibility to use my opportunities as a black woman who was born into a family with some degree of privilege as, as like, you know, I felt like I needed to be of service. And so I was sort of trying to think of how do I do that and also honor my truth. And so when hip hop emerged as this sort of like strain of hip hop that was about empowerment and uplifting the people and fighting the power, I felt like it was the perfect intersection of doing something good and worthwhile and important for the culture but also doing something authentic to myself as a creative person who deeply loved music so that's kind of why it felt so perfect to me as a calling almost. Right.
1: and I suppose music not that music and politics are tied but there is a certain societal like way that you have to be in politics and also where you have to be on the business side of music too, right? You have to be really open to a lot of things, whether it's creative or not, but you also have to kind of get people, you have to sell people an idea that is subjective. Art is subjective. so
2: Right. Oh my God. No, to me it was very similar. I mean, I pounded the pavement for one campaign for my parents after the other. I mean, I, I really, I did it so many times. It was second nature to me. And so when I came to New York and I started answering phones as an intern at Jive Records, I started pounding the pavement again, but on behalf of myself as this aspiring a person. And so, you know, the first time I met Russell Simmons, I told him my name is Drew Dixon. I want to do a and the hot new shit is boom, boom, boom. Wow. And every time I saw him, I would say the same thing. And eventually he's like, wait, 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 wait. Don't tell me your name is Drew Dixon. You want to do A&R. <laughs> and you were right. The hot new shit was boom, boom, boom. Now what's the hot new shit today? And so I, I really kind of thought of this as an extension of, you know, basically climbing the uphill battle, paying my dues, sweating it out in terms of making the case day by day, you know, achievement by achievement interaction by interaction that I really had something to offer my ideas were really worth trying. And so I didn't mind the hard work and I didn't mind, you know, mixing it up in all kinds of different situations because I'd grown up going to all kinds of different places as the candidate kid, you know, in the city that, you know, sometimes I was going to fundraisers with like really fancy people who were investing, not investing, who were, who were you know, um, contributing money to my you know, parents campaigns. And other times I was going to like block parties and doing the electric slide or a soul train line. And, you know, I, I kind of liked that aspect of, of the music industry. And I wasn't afraid of that. Um, what I never ever bargained for or imagined was the danger that I was in. I didn't, that's where I was really naive. I, I really thought if I just worked hard and I let sort of some of the coarse language and inappropriate stuff, you know, roll off my back and I shook it off and kept just keeping my nose to the grindstone and doing my work, that that would be enough. And I didn't realize there was this toxic sort of dynamic and there were these toxic men that used their power to really abuse people. And that was really what broke me because I was so optimistic and naive. And that really devastated me because I really looked up to both of those men Yeah, as well.
1: But even the other men that you mentioned, uh, there's there was that Lior Cohen as well. Mm. He was also, you, you mentioned some stories about him and just how badly he spoke to you and yeah you know and then you wonder like who, who, of course he's not speaking like that to a man and maybe no. he's not even speaking well, like that to no Lior
2: was verbally abusive to everyone yeah okay leor <laughs> was verbally abusive <laughs> to literally everyone he just there was an added element of gender specific abuse that suggested i was available right. sexually right. in some way that was completely repugnant to me and has mm-hmm. nothing to do with who I am that men did not have to deal with. But but Lawyer was Lior, yeah. sorry, was an equal opportunity verbal abuser. Just a uh. terror.
1: And the truth is is that I've met so many men like that it's like unbelievable Mm -hmm. they are all none of them are unique they're all exactly the same they kind of look the same they're like sweaty and they just like don't even they don't look you in the eye they're completely erratic and all over the show yeah but what do you think makes the music industry Ripe for that kind of behavior. Like, why is it the music ind- industry and the entertainment industry? Because I don't even feel like the music industry has had its me too moment. Essentially, no, no. I feel like you, you, and the nineteen other women who came forward about Russell. Uh, I feel like that was maybe one instant, and this week there's kind of one happening in the indie scene. For, mm-hmm. at Burger Records, that's currently happening mm-hmm. right now, mm-hmm. and just the tiny, tiny, small scenes but nothing right. nothing like the reckoning in Hollywood No So why do you feel like this industry is, is perfect for predatory behavior like that? Like why, why music, something as sacred as
2: music? I guess what I would say to anyone listening is I want to make sure every abuse, every survivor feels seen and heard I, I, I think abuse happens in every single industry mm-hmm. it's pervasive it's it's ubiquitous it's it's everywhere you know it's about an abuse of power and we live in a sort of patriarchal culture and you know it's it's systemic in the same way that racism is systemic and we have to really address it across the board but I do believe that these industries where the ultimate deliverable is totally a matter of opinion and it's totally subjective are really rife for this kind of pervasive abuse of power and you know unlike an industry where you can point to data and you know you can run the numbers and look at the statistics and make some estimate of sort of where your next big success story and and profit center is going to be. In the music industry, it's a matter of opinion. And so the people who've had success just get more and more room to maneuver. Mm. And they're given the benefit of the doubt. And they're given, you know, cover. And there's really no way for you, if you're somebody who's being abused by these men to move ahead without one of the very same men making the decision that your ideas are worth investing in. So Russell at least did let me explore the idea I had to make the duet with Method Man and Mary J. Blige. Mm -hmm. And he did let me co-executive produce the soundtrack for the show. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, L.A. Reid, wouldn't even let me sign Kanye West. And not only did he not let me sign him, he lectured me in front of the A&R department and said I was a loser and bad at my job. And if Kanye hadn't gone on to have a successful career, there's no way to prove that he was wrong, right? And then he did the same thing to me with John Legend where he just kept saying he was coming to his auditions and then didn't come because I wasn't coming to his hotel room. And he did it with an artist named Toya that I signed. He loved Toya, I made Toya's album her, her single, I Do, was the number one crossover song nationally at radio. He wanted me to come to her, his hotel room to listen to her album and I wouldn't go. And then in a staff meeting, the day after I sort of avoided his phone call when he kept calling me to come to his hotel room, he looked at me in the staff meeting and said to the whole you know, group assembled there that was saying how well the record was testing at radio, that he listened to the album in his hotel room and then he looked at me to sort of make the point and he said, I don't like this artist anymore. I don't like this album anymore. This project is over. Wow. And the radio staff was like, but what do you mean? It's testing so well. And so the point I'm making is if the if the toll, if the way you move ahead, if the gateway to progress professionally is literally in the hands of somebody's you know, opinion, right? If it comes down to someone's opinion, then they can just block you, block you and block you and block you and block you and destroy your career and destroy the career of artists and no one will ever be the wiser. And so I think it's really just prevalent in the music industry because it all comes down to the opinion of these small sort yeah. of get group of gatekeepers. Mm. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And so that's why people talk about systemic racism, that you can't just fix it by like reading a book or... Uh, naming five black people in your life or things like that is that the entire system kind of like education. I believe that the education system as well needs to be systemically dismantled. Like it is, Mm. it just does Mm. not work. um, Does not work in any, any, and all the countries that I've done work in education systems Mm. have to change fundamentally from the inside. And the same as these industries which do have gatekeepers and whether they are like old and crusty and dying yeah. off their ideology is so strong. Those behaviors are so strong that putting down somebody in, in front of others, I feel like that's such a, it's such a thing in the industry. Like you just put somebody mm, down mm. and not questioning it, I think is also cause nobody then the people in the room, weren't like, but hang on, you know, they, they know,
2: well, nobody wants to challenge him. Right. Nobody wants to, right. you know, somebody once said that the music industry is like high school with money. Right. And, <laughs> you know, nobody <laughs> wants to kick, get kicked out of the cool kids table in the cafeteria. And, you know, the way I would describe it, to your point about being systemic, it's not just that, you know, so if you don't understand the systemic nature of the abuse of power, whether it's Mm -hmm. racism or gender power, you know, it's not just about having your feelings hurt. So being that kid standing in the cafeteria with your tray full of food, having nowhere to sit is an experience that every single person can relate to. Mm -hmm. And you want to sit at the table with the cool kids because you want to have friends and you want to be included. And so that's part of it. But what if now at the table with the cool kids, promotions happen, deals happen, The police provide protection, you know, um, careers get made, you know, opportunities happen. All of a sudden, it's no longer I want to sit at that table because I don't want to be alone. It's not just I don't want to stand here with my tray and sit alone at my table because I don't feel cool. I want to figure out how to sit at that table because... That's where business is happening. That's where deals get done. That's the room where it happens. That's where you get protection. That's where you get resources and infrastructure to have a hit record, to move ahead professionally, to create a livelihood for yourself. So all of a sudden, it's no longer, oh, they said something mean and my feelings are hurt, so I'm sitting here alone eating my food. No, they're excluding me from the opportunities that could change my life and career. And the only way I can sit at that table is if I sleep with one of the men at the table, well then I'm dead in the water, Mm -hmm. I can't move ahead. And that's where it's systemic. That's where it's important that we address this because it's not just about me and the pain of having been raped and the pain of my career having been derailed or even the pain of the other artists I signed whose careers were derailed because I was being blackballed. It's about every single other person who is not being included in moving the culture forward in creating value for the society that can be economic, but that also can be, you know, artistic and and important socially. And that kind of gatekeeping and abuse and toxic behavior, has implications for the whole society. And that's why it's so important to me that we address it.
1: And I think that that's most of the issues that if even just innocent bystanders are at fault yes. in these situations, because even if you're cleaning up what's underneath the table at that, you know, in that cafeteria or, or you know, right. helping the person drive to that person to that table, you're still privy to so much. And it's the silence that is the most hurtful. And especially to impressionable young artists as well. I think that that's most of the cases that I've reported on or worked close to. It's that pressure of, well, I didn't know how else to get to where I needed to go. There was no other... It was either you're in or you're out. There's no Mm -hmm. conversation about it. There's no... You know, but why is this happening? But what, you know, so I must look around the room and see every woman working in music and think, oh, they're all they all had to go through that. You know, it's like a stain Mm -hmm. on the integrity of your own ability and your own work. So it's just blinding. It's a really.
2: Well, I would say innocent bystanders are not really innocent. Right. Exactly. Innocent bystanders are creating space for abusers to do what they do again and again and get away with it. This very day, J.Lo is working with L.A. Reid as I understand it on a new album. And she's making excuses for him saying, "You know, something that someone did in a moment shouldn't erase all of the good that he's done. But what L.A. Reid did to me wasn't a moment. It was a year and a half of abuse and hell that ended my whole entire career. There's another young woman who sued him and was driven out of the industry, also because of what he did. He settled with her in a in a you know a suit, I believe, in 2017. You know, it, it's not a moment. These are people's entire lives, entire careers that are derailed, and so innocent bystanders are not innocent. J Lo is not an abuser, but by agreeing to, as a woman and a mother, she is and a, and a role model. By continuing to work with L.A. Reid, she is not only enabling an abuser to avoid accountability, she is sending a message to every single woman in the industry, every single survivor in the world, that powerful men matter more than the pain that they inflict on innocent people. So innocent bystanders are not innocent. It is incumbent upon everyone who considers themselves a good person to take a stand and do the right thing and pick a side. You're either with the abusers or you're with the survivors and you have to choose.
1: Right. You're not in the you're not you cannot just be again, you cannot just be silent, just like with the Black Lives Matter movement posting like a black empty box and square just, and, right, and <laughs> calling it a day right and hashtagging and flooding you know a really important moment in time it's just it's like right. white supremacist tactics that happen same with in the music industry misogynistic tactics tactics in a, a take a stand do right. something
2: right. say i am not going to work with credibly accused abusers that's my policy and i'm going to use my power and my platform as a enormous star to take a stand and it's there like are like other producers him. who can make hit records. Right. It's not like she needs to so pick someone else, right? If anyone can pick any producer in the whole entire world, She can, and I'm not trying to pick on J-Lo because it's not the responsibility of the women to solve this. There are a lot of men out there, men I know, men who have described themselves to me in the past as my friends who have been silent, who are in the industry, who are avoiding me like the plague. And you know, it is noted, I see them. All of us see them, Salai, Sherry, we've all talked about it. All of the Russell Simmons survivors have talked about the deafening silence from men that we know in this industry who have considered themselves and called themselves our friends who will not take a stand. You know, there's there's a man, and I won't name a name, but he's a prominent man who sent me a really beautiful note when the New York Times article came out. I thought he was a supporter. And then I interacted with him very recently, like in the past couple months during the pandemic in an Instagram live context. Mm -hmm. And I sent him a note in the Instagram live and he didn't respond. And I couldn't understand it. I was like, that's so weird. We're friends. We've texted. We've talked about this. You know, he said he's supportive of me. And then another person sent a message to me and he didn't say anything about that. And then I realized that Russell Simmons was like in the Instagram live and he shouted him out. And so... You know, it's just like, Ugh. you know, it actually makes like, my, like,
1: I feel like my breathing get it gets heavier, like just because I think that whilst everybody, again, the bystanders, and thank you for saying that I shouldn't actually be referring to them as innocent. I, I definitely right. I just said that word without even thinking. Yeah, I mean, like it's right. of part it's an of expression. my system. Um, sure. And th- those people who's standing by, they're always like, well, if it isn't happening to me, then I don't want to overcomplicate because everybody has a story, right? Not everyone came sure. up to that point, uh, you know, easily. I know this. We all know this. But I do feel like if you are not saying something and then you do say something, but only behind closed doors, it's even worse to even attempt to, it's like a haunting horror story to come into your world and just say like, hey, I acknowledge you, I acknowledge you, but not really. And then, but not in public, right? Not in public, not in public, which is what I don't want to be seen
2: associating with you.
0: pause the podcast It's time to step away from the conversation with Drew Dixon ever so briefly to share a special segment. We typically like to share our favorite live show or live stream of the week, but we want to continue putting the spotlight where it's most needed and instead highlight an organization we think you should contribute to. This week we're highlighting the Crossroads Fund, an organization which supports community groups working on issues of racial, social, and economic justice in Chicago. To contribute, head to crossroadsfund.org/donate. That's crossroadsfund.org slash donate. As always, the link will also be in the episode description, as well as our essential resources guide available on social media. If you have an organization you think should be highlighted in this segment, please reach out to us at thismustbethegig at gmail.com. But for now, back to Lior and Drew. Enjoy!
2: You know, I think people wonder like why I'm even still talking about this. The film is out there, do they? you know, I've I... told my story. Right. But yeah, no, I do get that sometimes. People send me messages, let it go, you know. No. some no, to right. be protective of me, some sure. because they, sure. they, you know, feel like I'm taking down a hero. And you know, I guess what what I would say is in the documentary I talk about Anita Hill, which happened yes. in nineteen ninety one when yes. I was a senior in college. And then I was raped in 1995. And one of the things that I thought of when I talked about calling the police that night with my good friend mm-hmm. was the way the black community came to DC in busloads to protest Anita Hill for coming forward, not Clarence Thomas for sexually harassing her. And I remember that so well. And I remember the feeling of just fear at somehow becoming the target of that kind of harassment from my own community. And it's one of the reasons I didn't come forward. And since the film came out, many survivors who are about my age have come forward to me in messages on Instagram and Twitter, private messages, saying that they also remember what happened to Anita Hill. And that is why they didn't come forward. And so here's what I care about right now today i'm a 49 year old woman you know i feel very grateful for all of my blessings i'm going to be okay you know i have spent many years in therapy i feel like i'm healing mm-hmm. i have two beautiful children i'm not here speaking out because i'm worried about myself i'm worried about every single survivor out there who is watching the lack of of support for me and Salai and Sherry, in particular from the music industry Mm -hmm. and in particular from the black community Mm -hmm. and the chilling effect that the silence and the lack of support for us is having on every single survivor out there and every single survivor watching the way the wind is blowing in response to our story, who is now going to be less likely to tell somebody what he or she or they are experiencing and less likely to get help and less likely to feel like they deserve to be safe and less likely to be free and healed. And I don't want any other survivor to wait 22 years to get free Mm. because they saw me and Sherry and Salai and Jenny Lumet and Alexia Norton Jones and the other women in this film being left to twist in the wind. And then we lose a whole nother generation of survivors who are not able to heal, because they don't think that anybody cares, that it's not safe, that even women, artists like J-Lo, the good guys won't speak out. And that is terrifying to me because it has implications for so many other people out there who need to know that we care and that it's safe and we will support them. Mm -hmm. And that's really why I am still talking about this. It's for them, it's for everyone else.
1: But it was so tragic to see that footage of Anita Hill and Desiree Washington in the documentary because having yes. to go through the same thing and know that we're still facing the exact we're same issues even more so because now we have tools. There are journalists who should be more informed to ask the proper questions. There there are there's right. a trace, there are receipts. You can we have a digital there, yeah. digital journalism although is absolutely crumbling as well as every other mm-hmm. industry is also actually right. a beautiful barometer for 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 journalistic tactics now. You can trace right. messages. You can see times that things were sent. You can trace back when did this right. person call and harass this person? At what time? Where were they? You can trace right. you know, you can trace there are receipts now. And I feel right. like
2: there are receipts. And
1: I feel like even just you Having to speak up, I think the term survivor, just whilst you were speaking, you made me think of, I wonder if even the term survivor is even, you're not even just surviving from that incident and those incidents that happened to you, but also from online harassment, from people in the industry, Mm -hmm. from, you're surviving from yourself changing. You also have to go through Mm -hmm. that whole life of change and how, you know, mm-hmm. your experience with something so sacred was just squashed. And yeah. I just, I wonder, like, I'm not sure who said it. And I wish I could properly credit them. And I will, um I'll do my uh, research and go back to the documentary and make sure I fix that. But somebody said during the documentary that they wonder what would have happened mm. into the industry. Kierna-Mail. Right. Karen said it. Like I think about you Ugh. and I think about the things I know now that you you are now working on your own independent company ninth floor. Yeah. And yes. um you know Ella
2: Wild is my artist. Ella Wild. And so yeah. I feel like
1: there you are back in it thankfully and yes. we need you in it. I I and but I just think do you feel like there is a personal record that you worked on that really you know, you mm. other than the John Legend, other than the Kanye, who obviously is in the tabloids right now for kind of devastating mm. reasons. But did you have mm. somebody, a favorite artist that you worked with that, unfortunately, because of your experience, just got overlooked? If that's even fair for me to ask. Wow.
2: You know, gosh, there, there was an artist that I wanted to sign named Alice Smith. Mm-hmm. And um, she did go on to get signed to Sony. I auditioned her for Ellie Reed and I wasn't able to sign her. I, I don't in any way attribute it to the dynamic in terms of, you know, him wanting to sexualize our relationship. But that's someone I really think I could have made a great record with. Um, you know, it's hard. It's hard to say. I'm very proud of that duet. You know, the Mary J. Blige Method Man du- duet. Oh gosh, and, and
1: the show. It didn't occur oh. to
2: me... And the show soundtrack, it, it didn't, I'm very proud of A Rose is Still a Rose, which was a result of me introducing Aretha Franklin to Lauryn Hill. Um, you know, I I didn't really think about it until the documentary, like I saw the rough cut of the documentary because I've tried so hard not to have regrets because they're just like, it's like a endless, sure. you know, black hole really sure. to think about what I lost mm-hmm. in some ways. But I, I have had people call me or text me and say that when I left the industry, there was no one to take a certain kind of artist in a certain kind of record because I represented a certain kind of point of view creatively and they knew that I would get it. And there was no longer anyone who kind of had that point of view. And so, you know, I, I, I mean, I, I do believe that it wouldn't, I know the duet wouldn't have happened because the Method Man interlude was part of the Tacal album that was already finished when I asked Russell if we could try the idea of making it a duet with Mary. And so that definitely wouldn't have happened without me. But I also think that because I'm a woman and, you know, at the time I was actually dating D'Angelo, who's a recording artist. And, you know, well, when you I heard the Method Man D'Angelo. interlude... I was dating oh, D'Angelo wow. when I first got to Death oh, Jam. My yeah. Gosh.
1: Okay. And I. What an artist. Yeah. Wow. And he was so he was
2: finishing the Brown Sugar album. And I the Method Man Interlude reminded me of mm. Michael and mm. my relationship with him. And I wanted it to be explored because I'd never heard anyone say in like the vocabulary of hip-hop such loving things about his girlfriend in a way that really resonated with me as a young woman dating a guy like D'Angelo. And D'Angelo was singing some of those kinds of things, but to hear somebody rhyming those kinds of things was so just touching to me as a woman. And I now realize that my lens as a woman informed the records that I helped to champion and fight for and, You know, I I fought for that interlude. I fought Clive and convinced him that Lauren Hill should produce the the, the Aretha Franklin record because he wanted me to call Wyclef or Stevie J or somebody from like, you know, Puffy's team of producers. And I insisted that Lauren Hill should produce it herself. And I actually even convinced Clive to let her direct the video. And, you know, I, I feel like, you know, I always tried to fight for music that I thought was gonna be big and artists that I thought could be, you know, franchises as they say, like truly iconic artists. I always fought for that. I always understood, I always had like commercial ears. Like I could hear hits. I didn't hear just like sort of obscure album cuts. Mm -hmm. I could hear hits, Mm -hmm. but I also liked to fight for hits that also were uplifting and hits that sort of empowered women, which I feel like, you know, some of the records that we worked on, you know, with Whitney Houston, that I worked on with Rodney Jerkins, and, you know, um, I feel like, you know, the Estelle records that I helped, you know, to make, all sort of brought this lens that I had as a woman and a woman who had respect for myself, even as I had overcome all of these real insults to my integrity as a woman. And I always tried to push the music in that direction. And Toya was an artist whose album was about her perspective as a powerful, confident 19 year old woman from St. Louis. And I now realize that my perspective was important not just because I made a lot of hit records or helped to make a lot of hit records, you know, but because I helped to push for records and and create space for artists to do something that was beautiful and not nihilistic and not misogynistic. And that by being pushed out of the industry. I think that point of view also got lost and that there weren't many people left who cared. And I do regret that I didn't get to make more records that felt like My Love Is Your Love or Maria Maria or American Boy, or I'll Be There For You or Rose To The Rose or Nobody's Supposed To Be Here by Deborah Cox or you know, so many of the records that I helped to make that I think have a feeling and a sound that I also think are joyful and and really just come from a place of sort of swagger but also sort of a dignified place and I regret not being able to do that for 20 more years and I also regret not being able to mentor more young executives one of my interns is a vice president of ANR at I think RCA now oh wow but yeah, I, 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 another person that I mentored became a manager. Um, and I regret that I didn't get to stick around. You know, I've forgotten the story. My cousin is a Grammy-winning producer. His name is DJ Khalil and he's part of Dr. Dre's, you know, crew of producers, He he's amazing. Mm-hmm. And I completely forgot that he was visiting me as a student at Morehouse College and I told him that Puffy's producers had just bought a lot a lot of um a bunch of equipment from Sam Ash, which is like a store that sells recording equipment and instruments. And I said if you go in there and just say you're one of Puffy's producers, they're not gonna ask you to prove it, but you'll get fifty percent off. And if you really wanna be a producer, <laughs> you should go get this, 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 and the other thing. And just say you're Poppy's producer. And he was like, yo, I totally did that. And that's how I got like my first sort of, you know, like, you know, suite of tools. And now he's like a three-time Grammy winner. And I didn't even remember that story, but until he told me literally like, I don't know, a month ago. But I always tried to kind of do the same thing for artists and producers and young executives that I'm doing now. like In fact, Clive Davis used to always complain that my meetings were too long because when artists would audition for me, I could tell very quickly if they were going to be good. And 99% of the time they weren't good. But then I would ask them, okay, first of all, I want to give you so much credit for standing in my office and singing today or rapping today. That's huge. That takes so much courage and You should be so proud of yourself and you've already won. I don't think this is gonna be a fit for you, but tell me more about your favorite subjects in school. What else do you like to do? Like I always wanted to make sure they left my office feeling empowered and not broken and Clive was like, "That's not your job. Your meetings are too long."
1: <laughs> well, it is. I mean, you're a human. I think that there's so much humanity yeah. stripped of creative fields because of that opinion and those gatekeepers. It's like yeah. you actually can be really nice. I think that the, I wanted to be nice yeah, and there's, there's supportive, and supportive and yeah, and also knowing a force for good, <laughs> knowing how that person's entire life can change from just one rejection.
2: Oh, my God. I just And I could see in their eyes Mm. they were crestfallen. And I wanted to make sure they left with a little twinkle, just a little twinkle. Like when Kanye cried in my office, I was like, look, first of all, it's not you. It's me. Secondly, you are so talented. You're going to win so many Grammys. You won't know where to put them. You know, I gave him the same pep talk. You know, I gave John the pep talk. I mean, they didn't need it. I mean, they went on and did so well, but other people didn't. And, you know, I... I always tried to use my opportunity to, you know, bring music into the world that was, I thought, going to make us all sort of happier and more joyful, that was going to empower artists to have careers beyond my wildest dreams, who would just pass me and become mega stars, but that I could say I played a small role in facilitating that. And now, as a survivor who suddenly found my voice after 22 years of never, ever, ever wanting to be known for this, I'm now trying to use this opportunity that I have to hold the door open for every survivor out there who hasn't found her voice or his voice or their voice so that they can be free. And that's just kind of the way I see my purpose. And I don't believe in regrets. I'm grateful that I'm here. I'm grateful for this moment. I'm grateful for this platform. And I hope I'm making a difference.
1: You are. I think you absolutely are. I think I I was just thinking now, though, when you were talking, do you remember the first time that you saw a live show or a hip hop live, especially considering how, you know, Mm. you you were so entrenched in that industry? Do you remember the first time or the first show
2: that you ever saw? I remember the first concert I think I remember the first concert I saw which was Rick James and the Mary Jane oh, Girls Oh wow <laughs> My <laughs> uncle was like somehow working with Rick James I think as an attorney mm-hmm. in Boston and we went to see Rick James and the Mary Jane Girls in Providence, Rhode Island and I remember that the whole entire concert venue smelled like marijuana, which I'd never (laughs) smelled before. I was like, what is that? Um, (laughs) but it was an amazing show (laughs) and, um, my first rap concert. Wow. Um, you know, I went to college in the Bay area and so I, God, I, it, it was probably like some West coast rap group. I can't, I went to all these like multi headline shows, like headlined by like MC hammer, but like I don't know, like Too Short and all these other artists were probably on the bill. You know, I can't say I remember my first rap concert, but I feel like the concerts that really in some ways meant the most to me were the Go-Go concerts I went to as a kid in D.C., Chuck Brown at Crystal Skate, Rare Essence, you know, um, like, you know, EU, Trouble Funk, Mm -hmm. like those go-go bands, man, like those, Junkyard Band, like those shows were just like electric for me. And so in some ways, go-go concerts were almost more transformational for me than anything. But okay. My favorite concerts because they told me you might ask me that. Yes, I have to tell you, but it's it's a four way tie, which is oh my god! No, you're
1: not. It's a four way tie. You're being authentic. Okay, just give it to me.
2: I can't choose. So it's Prince, (gasps) Purple Rain, 1982, Capital Center, like oh (laughs) my god where were like, you standing oh were you standing close i was like no like okay. corner bleacherish okay. but like not terrible yeah. i was like the third section up not like the sixth. okay it was good enough for me yeah. okay like <laughs> i was dying i mean I was just like oh my god Another one, which was, like, very different, but was also at the Capitol Center, was Luther Vandross. Oh. Um, Okay. Because, you know, I'm from D.C., so I remember when I first got to New York, and I told this mentor of mine, like, I was talking about Luther Vandross, and he was talking about Madonna, Mm -hmm. and I didn't realize that Madonna had sold more records than Luther Vandross. I was like, you're (laughs) kidding. Like, coming from D.C., like, Luther? Luther? Is like Luther, right. like he's not even Luther. Mm-hmm. Like, I couldn't even believe that Madonna was bigger than Luther Vandross. So, like, the Luther concert at the Cap Center was beyond. Um, and so then
1: wait, when was that? That was ha- that the same venue as the Prince
2: concert. That was so Prince was 1982, okay. probably. No, what no, no, Prince was gosh, no, when was Purple Rain? I don't know, maybe 83, 84. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the Rick James one was like 81, 82. Luther was probably, I want to say, like, I don't know, 85. And then another one was um, Michael Jackson, the Victory Tour, the Jacksons, also Providence, Rhode Island. I wore my Thriller jacket. (laughs) And oh my God! Like that was oh, my first one to not that to. I don't know really? which. Really, mine
1: was like the history tour. They he mm. came to South Africa, or where I'm from, and he like erected a gigantic statue Ugh. of himself. It was just oh, this. My, huge oh my God! Statue. Okay, I saw that
2: footage. <laughs>
1: it's this huge That's statue. Insane. Oh my gosh! Okay, so you that was the victory tour this was like
2: the victory tour this is at the height of thriller the height of you know beat it billy jean i mean human nature he moonwalked i mean and then the jacksons came out and they did the jackson five songs i mean (sighs) that was like whoa and then the other one that's like totally different in tone but like Oh my god, I actually went 3 days in a row because by then I was a record executive and right, you, could. you know, I could get tickets. Yeah. <laughs> but in this case, actually one of them was a date which was front row like center and like that was a great date. Um shot a Madison Square Garden, <gasps> Lovers Rock. Uh, and oh my god, that woman had every single person in that kids. stadium in the palm of her hand yeah. and she's maybe one of my favorites of all Mm, time. mm. Like I think if I had to choose like that woman is, wow, just otherworldly to me. Um, And she's just so dignified. Do
1: do you remember the settlers?
2: I remember she sat on the edge of the stage and sang Jezebel with like no shoes on. And I was like two feet from her (laughs) and I was like, oh my God. Um, And you know, it was your love is King. Mm -hmm. And it was, you know, it was the Lover's Rock. It was, um, oh, my God. Um, 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 Not just Lover's Rock, but um, Think I'll Leave Your Side, baby. What's, um, oh, my God. By Your Side. side. By Your Side. By Your your Side. side. Oh, my
1: God. I was just thinking, like, just going through the lyrics. But
2: to me, the best was the second. The encore is always um, Is It a Crime? But then the second encore, she did a second encore, Mm -hmm. which was... It's Only Love That Gets You Through. And by this time, a lot of people were leaving because it's a very quiet song, but I never leave. Like, I'm always like, oh, really? Like, at the garden, you don't care. But I'm always, like, suspicious of the people that really need to get their car out of the parking lot because that's, like, more important to them than the last song. I'm like, okay, so you're not my kind of person. (laughs) Um, So, like, I will sit in my car for five hours, but I'm not leaving before the show is over. Yeah, And she sang It's Only Love That Gets You Through, which is maybe my favorite Sade song of all time. And it was just so quiet and so soulful and so beautiful and so intimate. And that's what I find so magnificent about her. She's subtle. It's understated, but it's just arresting. It's just arresting. And um, she's maybe my favorite of all time.
1: Oh, my God. Did you ever get to meet her?
2: i've never met her i think that they would have to like tee up the ambulance <laughs> because i would literally be dead it would just be like five four three two one like you know we need life support like <laughs> i don't know that i could i could meet her i'm there's not sure a, that i could handle that there's
1: a line in that song it's only love that gets you through it's like i can't i need to look up the lyrics but it's something like it's amazing how you
2: love that she mm, says it's like it's in amazing the first how word, you love oh. Just yeah it's melty, it's yeah, melty. Yeah. yeah oh yeah 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 oh that's it's just so wonderful
1: wow. i love that you had four choices i have to just say because <laughs> i i feel terrible asking this question it's what the entire show is based around because i do feel that those favorite concerts certainly dictate what sort of person like you can tell so much about mm. a person by not only what they saw but the ones that stick out to them. I'm not saying that it it, it, it is who you are and like you're cemented right. to Right. Okay. That. I have
2: a fifth one now because it's totally different because <laughs> I thought about this.
1: Okay. Okay.
2: When I was Go. interning at Warner Brothers Records mm-hmm. in the black music department, we got to see Chaka Khan <gasps> at the Blue Note. Oh
1: my God.
2: And it was the teeniest, tiniest venue. I mean, it's like maybe 40 people. And... We had great, I mean, there aren't any bad seats, but I was with the Warner Brothers Black Music Department. So we had like one of the tables right there. And she sang like, I don't know, 12 jazz standards. And I know all of these standards because I grew up in a household where my mother listened to Billie Holiday and Duke Ellington and Dinah Washington and Sarah Vaughan. And so I knew them all, but i never heard Chaka Khan sing them. And when I tell you this woman's voice is one of the most perfect instruments when she's in good voice, I actually saw her the next night because I was you know, part of the staff. So we got to go both nights and she was not well. And I think that's when she was like battling alcoholism. She's talked about it a lot. So she was like, it was a completely different show. She was not well, she was not sober. It was like, oh my God, I can't believe this is the same person. But the night before it was absolutely flawless, just her interpretation of these jazz standards. Like every single note was so precise and so just gorgeous. That it's up there. It's a different kind of concert, but oh my God. But you're like,
1: transfixed. Oh I mean, there's nothing. Transfixed. Also, I think that there's so many of those experiences that I think back to. I love those huge concerts that I've been able to go to. Right. And like I had to fly because in South Africa, they didn't, you know, we didn't get the kind of artists that, you know, normally would mm-hmm. tour. You'd get the gigantic ones, but once or twice right. a year, which is fine. But, you know, it makes you yeah. appreciate live music so much. And when you do get those experiences yeah. where you're sitting in a tiny room, you can feel oh that God. person next to you if they are reacting. Yeah, Like you can feel oh. their breath and their, you know, emotion. And you, I don't know, yeah. I, I don't know about you, but I felt so connected, not only to the artist, but what the artist gives you is that connection to everyone uh, yeah. else. And then you're like, "Oh, Absolutely. this is why we're all here." <laughs> you're like, "This is yeah, why yeah. music is is this thing." This is why right. we do it. <laughs> right.
2: This is why it's worth fighting for.
1: Absolutely, it's this
2: moment. It's that magic oh, that, that I fought for.
1: Yeah. So tell me a little bit about Ninth Floor and what are your what are you, what are the things that you want to achieve by having your own independent company and uh, what can people look out for? How can people follow you and find you? tell me a little bit about what's happening at the moment
2: so the ninth floor is something that i never would have expected to be a thing this time two and a half years ago when i went forward with my story in the new york times Mm -hmm. i thought i was shutting the door forever and would never ever have the opportunity to make music on like a professional level again and quite unexpectedly A woman read the article, a woman I know, she was my kid's preschool teacher, and she asked me to meet with her daughter, Ella Wilde, because her daughter wanted advice, and having read the New York Times article. And I was so surprised that anyone would read that article and think that I was somebody that could help them because I was persona non grata at this point. And when I met with her, I was blown away. Ella Wilde plays the guitar, she plays the piano, she writes, beautifully. She sings beautifully. She's got an amazing presence and she's really the artist I hope would walk in my door every single day that I did a at Def Jam and Arista. You know, she's like, you know, Alanis Morissette meets Alicia Keys meets, I don't know, Taylor Swift. She's, she's self-contained. She's really a poet and an artist. Um, and, and, but also has massive star quality. And I'm also so grateful that I didn't meet her because I then, because I wouldn't have, made, wouldn't have been able to protect her. And so what I'm grateful for is that I met her now when even though I don't have the resources I used to have, I do have my independence and my autonomy and my freedom and I'm clear about what I will and won't tolerate. And so my goal is to build a label that creates the space that she needs and that any other artist that I should happen to discover needs to find their voice, make truly great competitive records, which I can help them make because I can, I've done that, I I know how to do that and I know how to help edit and shape their own sort of craft without impeding them and without in any way getting in the way of them finding their authentic voice. So my goal with The Ninth Floor is to sort of block and tackle for artists, find the resources for them, create the space for them, create exposure and a platform for them to be discovered by their fans. And really to do the thing that I love so much, that I've missed so much, that I didn't even admit to myself that I missed, and it's called the ninth floor because that was the floor where I worked with Clive Davis, Mm -hmm. where I worked with Whitney Houston and Carlos Santana and Q-tip and brand Nubian and Deborah Cox and Toya and Monica and you know, so many other artists. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's where I was safe. It's where I was the most productive. The ninth floor at Arista records had its own security because Clive felt really strongly about not, polluting the energy around the delicate creative process with the lawyers who might come to the floor or the promotions people who might wanna to come to the floor, or the marketing people or the production people or the video people, because making a record is not about any of those things. And you need space to really discover the music and honor that process before you then let the promotions people get involved and the lawyers get involved and the scheduling people get involved. and the finance people get involved. And so the ninth floor for me is really kind of an homage to the four and a half years that I had the safety and the space to really do the thing I loved at a very high level. And I'm hoping that Ella can, you know, make an album that's, you know, worthy of her talent. She's written so many amazing songs. I'm in the process of raising money now to fund the recording of her album. She's got three songs on iTunes and Spotify now. One is called Medicine that she wrote, which she actually played for me the very first time I ever heard it, and that's captured in the documentary. Um, A song that I wrote called Favorite Doll, and then a cover of the Hall Out song Rich Girl, which I co-produced. So those songs are already out there, but she has so many more songs that she wrote. That I'd like to produce, you know, have produced and get made for her. So I'm raising money to do that. I'm trying to bring awareness to the songs that she does already have that are out there. And, um, you know, I've been inundated since the film came out with other artists who are sending me music through Instagram and Twitter. Oh, wow! And I'd like to be able to find, you know, honor those submissions when I have the bandwidth and, you know, I'm actually bringing somebody on to sort of help me with the label because I'm a little bit overwhelmed with everything and I want to make sure that I do get to those demos and if there's anything great that hopefully I can create space for other young artists to to blossom frankly and um that's just I really find tremendous joy in Stumbling across something totally raw, but totally beautiful and totally original and arresting and finding a way to help, you know, nurture that kernel of creativity and, and bring it to as many people as I possibly can. So that's what the ninth floor is all about.
1: It sounds wonderful. And it sounds like the perfect time for it too. And I'm so glad that people are actually reaching out Do you feel like you'll ever work with Kanye?
2: You know, I don't know. I'm so concerned, frankly. I I don't know what his mental state is. Yeah. I really adore him. He was lovely when I worked with him or tried to, you know. We stayed in touch for many years after that audition. I would check in on him from time to time. He would always respond to me immediately when I, you know, reached out. I actually started writing and recording my own songs kind of in like, you know, the 2010s, not because I'm like a great singer by any means, but because I just sort of was so, you know, desperate to make music. It's just literally like breathing for me that I decided to make music on the only artist I could find, which was myself. and. I actually, he heard I was making music and texted me out of the blue and said, can you come tomorrow and play me your music? I've got to hear this stuff. And it's really funny. He wasn't, you know, married with kids and, and it was father's day and he was oblivious to the fact that it was father's day. And I had two little kids and I asked my, my then husband, if he minded, if I went over to Kanye's place with a friend of mine who was a producer on one of my songs and He was like, that's fine. And I went over there and I played him a bunch of my songs. And one of them was actually Favorite Doll, which is the song that... And Kanye loved Favorite Doll. And he actually texted me like... Three weeks later, he's like, Drew, Favorite Doll is my most played song on my iPod. I just realized that. And that's the song that Ella recorded. Um, And, you know, I adore Kanye. And, you know, years later when I was running John Legend's label, I reached out to him... And that's how he ended up on American Boy. And when we were in the studio working in American Boy, he said he would never forget that I was one of the very 1st AMR people that championed him and tried to get him a deal. So we really had this very lovely, sincere connection. And then, honestly, when he started dating Kim, all of his numbers changed, all of his management changed, yeah. and I've never been able to reach him since. And I've always... Worried about him. Mm-hmm. I've sent him a few messages or tried to like through John. I'm not that in touch with John Legend anymore either, but every now and then in the very beginning, I would send a message to John, like, do you know how he's doing? And he would say, I don't really know. It's He's kind of in a different world. So, you know, I don't know. I just really hope that he's okay. You know, he's, Right. I don't know. I mean, obviously his mother died and he, we were, his mother died as we were preparing to shoot the video for American boy and I couldn't believe that he was still, he was touring. Um, I think he did like a show like the next day at like the O2 arena, I think in UK or something. I just remember seeing that on his schedule because we were trying to schedule the video and I just couldn't believe that he wasn't, Grieving. Like unplugging and processing. And I don't think he really processed it. I don't know him well enough to say for sure, but he just kept going. And I don't know. I worry about him a lot as a human being. I really just hope he's okay.
1: This Must Be The Gig is produced by Adam Kibble. We'd like to thank Dean Berger and Daniel Brater for additional music, as well as the Consequence Podcast Network Miss you
2: Consequence Podcast Network.